Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A recent report from Moody's Analytics indicates that Pennsylvania is not financially prepared for another recession. The report examines metrics, including the state's cash reserves and credit rating, to determine the Commonwealth is in the bottom fifth of states adequately prepared for the economic stress of the recession. Joining us to discuss Pennsylvania's level of preparedness is the report's author, Daniel White, director of Moody's Analytics. Mr. White, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Scott. Also, Matthew Niddle is the executive director of Pennsylvania's independent fiscal office. Matt Niddle, welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or a comment about Pennsylvania's economic future, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Dan, why, why is Pennsylvania considered one of the states that is most unprepared for another recession? Well, we did, a, we did some studies, and I should preface this by saying that I work for Moody's Analytics, which is a, an entirely separate company from Moody's Investor Service, which is the ratings agency. Right, right. Make sure that we have that clear right off the bat. Yes. Um, so we did this report, and we found that if we go into another recession, we used some alternative economic assumptions and said, you know, if we, if we have another normal recession, um, how much will states need uh, in order to get through their next budgets? And we found that Pennsylvania actually scored pretty well in terms of the size of the hole it would have if we had another recession. Um, in other words, Pennsylvania would need about 7% of its budget put away in reserve in order to not have to raise taxes or cut spending the next time we go through another recession. The average state would need about 10.5%. So Pennsylvania does score well there. Where Pennsylvania scores poorly is that Pennsylvania has no money put away for the next recession. As a matter of fact, coming off of last year's uh, budget situation, we have less than zero. So we are among the worst states in terms of preparedness for the next recession, which means that um, when we go into that next recession, which will happen, you know, we, we don't know when, but it will come, uh, Pennsylvania will have to either raise taxes or cut spending much, much more than the average state nationwide. When you say less than, it's, it's like minus 1.8% according to the report. What's that mean? So that basically means that we ran a deficit last year, which is one of the reasons why we had such a, a, a budget back and forth over the last three or four months. And because we had that deficit, we actually have zero cash balances to carry forward from the previous year into the next one. We actually owed money to the, the previous year. What factors in particular in Pennsylvania are having an impact on the state being unprepared, unable to save cash? In other words, what's costing Pennsylvania the most? Sure. Uh, well, if you look at a lot of the states who are well prepared, there are states who are either energy states who have seen this movie before and they know how it ends, so they've, they've always traditionally carried very high reserves. Or there are states who maybe didn't have necessarily the large structural imbalances um, going into the last recession that Pennsylvania and a handful of other states have. The biggest problem for Pennsylvania budget-wise right now is not necessarily that there's not enough revenue to go around or that there's, not, there's too much frivolous spending. The biggest issue in Pennsylvania is that uh, our mandatory spending issues, so pensions and uh, something that's often not looked at enough or doesn't get enough attention, our Medicaid um, spending, is a much larger piece of our overall budget, which means that um, when legislators come into Harrisburg at the beginning of the budget season, roughly 40% of the budget is already spoken for before they even get to touch it. And those pieces are growing much faster than the revenue that's coming in the door to pay for them. And until we can kind of equalize the, the growth rates in those two items, uh, Pennsylvania is going to continue to have problems out into the future. The report says that while other states are planning for the next economic downturn, uh, that Pennsylvania is one of the few states dealing with the last recession 10 years ago. In what way? 
Well, Pennsylvania wasn't prepared then because of those structural issues that we talked about. And so it really never got the breathing room that some of these other states have had. So if you look at a lot of states, and we, I work in about 36 different states in some form or another. And what I see in the, the most states that I go into is they finally hit some, some period of breathing room. They may not be as, as good as they were in the mid-2000s, but um, they're relatively comfortable. We're in a period of economic expansion. The unemployment rates, you know, 4.1%. This is when states are supposed to be having breathing room to deal with that next recession whenever it may come. Most states are experiencing that. Pennsylvania should be experiencing that given what the Pennsylvania economy is doing. Um, but because of those structural issues that were never solved during the previous recession, um, we're still trying to figure out a way to, to fund the budget next year as opposed to trying to find a way to make sure we're funded through the next recession five, six years down the road. Matt Nittle, you de- deal with this on an everyday basis. And in fact, uh, the Independent Fiscal Office is compiling a report that will, will be released next week uh, looking ahead to Pennsylvania's future. Your thoughts on what you've learned about this report from uh, Moody's Analytics? Yeah, Scott, I think we would concur with uh, most of Dan's comments that he uh, he made that um, Pennsylvania currently uh, effectively has no rainy day fund to carry us through uh, emergency spending if a recession did hit. And looking back at the last uh, two recessions, we had a mild one in, in 01 and a severe one in 08. Uh, there were uh, severe shortfalls at that time. Uh, for the 01 recession, which was relatively mild, we think maybe about a $3 billion hit to the budget, 2 to $3 billion. For the more severe one, it was probably closer to 5 or $6 billion. So the order of magnitude that Dan's talking about, perhaps uh, 7 to 10% rainy day fund, um, uh, would be good to, uh, to meet emergency spending if another recession did hit. And my office currently, right now, we are undertaking an analysis, and we're, we're required to do this by statute on November 15th. Uh, this year it will be November 16th, where we're required to release a five-year outlook for the Pennsylvania economy and the budget. And uh, it's at that time that we make projections of the revenues and the expenditures, and then we put the two together to try to determine whether there's a structural deficit or surplus, given all the current information. Can you give me a preview? Uh, I can't as of yet. Uh, we are putting the figures together, and with the revenue package that just passed, we're putting in uh, that last-minute information to try to make a determination. So last, the last few years, we have identified uh, a structural deficit on the order of $1.5 to $2 billion. So we'll have to see if the revenue package can address that issue. Mm-hmm. But suffice to say, when you say that uh, you agree with what Dan White had to say and their analysis of Pennsylvania, that... There may not be reason for optimism here. Yeah, it is a what I would characterize as a challenging environment. And, and one thing I, w- I would cite as well, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, they do a, a survey of professional economists uh, every month. And the latest survey found that uh, the economists thought there would be about a 15% chance of a recession over the next year. Now, if we extrapolate that forward over five years, and it's 15% every year, then it's more likely than not over a five-year period that we would endure at least a mild recession. Now, Dan, I'm going to ask you about this as well, because one thing you do do in the report is talk about uh, the potential for another recession. But, Matt, let me ask you. I mean, the state is doing well right now, okay? Budget aside, economically, the state is doing well. The country as a whole is doing well. If you look at jobs reports, you look Mm -hmm. at gross domestic product, you look at almost everything, the economic indicators are on the positive side right now. So what would lead you to believe that there, I mean, eventually there's a downturn. Obviously that happens. But what would lead you to believe what are the signals that there could be one coming in the next few years? Yeah, I concur with all your observations. The economy in Pennsylvania is, is doing fairly well. I mean, the, the labor market in particular is very solid. And so uh, economists always say that recessions, uh, you know, recoveries, excuse me, don't die of old age. Something causes them. And it could be a number of uh, technical factors. It could be something overseas, um, even uh, I hate to say even a terrorist attack, something such as that could be... That's what happened in 2001. Yeah. Absolutely, an overhang of debt that's building up. And some people have pointed to auto loans now and student student debts, uh, things such as that. So there could be a number of factors that are unanticipated, despite the fact that the economy is, is on solid footing right now. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, in the report, uh, you mentioned that there could be a recession within the next two to three years. What do you base that on? Well, if you look at, uh, you know, Matt's right. You know, we don't just have a recession because we haven't had one for a while. 
But if you look at the past recessions we've had over the last 30 or 40 years, I'm thinking 1991, 2001, the Great Recession certainly, they have been at least in part self-inflicted. Um, and if you look at the, the, the time since the past recession, so we're eight years since the past recession, if we were to get through mid-2019, we would be in the single longest period of expansion in modern American history. And so while there's no reason for us to automatically go over the cliff in two years, ten years is a long time for us to go without screwing something up. <laughs> and it's possible that we, we find that way really easily. Uh, our baseline forecast doesn't assume we have another recession until about 2020, but um, the odds you know, seem to be increasing that we have one before that. The Great Recession of 2007, 2008, uh, you know, the, the, what was the what a lot of people said here in Pennsylvania was that Pennsylvania weathered it better than many other states like California, like Nevada, Florida, where, uh, you know, the housing bubble really caused a, a problem. I mean, we even though obviously Pennsylvania was impacted by it, that we weathered it pretty well. Dan, from what you're saying with the state now, you know, there's a difference between the economy and state government, what state's spending and all that. But uh, from what you're saying, if there was another recession in the next few years, Pennsylvania's current situation with state government, that we would not weather it as well. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. So if, if a state's not prepared for the next recession, they either have to raise taxes significantly or they have to cut spending significantly. Both of those have negative economic repercussions. After the Great Recession, states as a whole laid off almost three-quarters of a million workers. It's one of the reasons why the Great Recession was followed by the not-so-great recovery. You had 750,000 mid-wage jobs that were no longer there. If you look at um, how many of those have come back, about half of those jobs haven't come back. It's one of the reasons why mid-wage jobs took such a long time to come back from the Great Recession. It's one of the reasons that wages have been stagnant. You know, a lot of the jobs that we, we have regained since the Great Recession are not the same as the jobs that we lost. And States and local governments are a big part of that. And so I think a lot of people look at this as, well, you know, we're trying to protect our budget. We're trying to protect spending for certain items. By protecting your budget, you're also protecting your economy. And Pennsylvania's economy will not be as strong if its state government is not as strong. Let's take a phone call from Mark in Lancaster. Mark, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. And uh, as your guests have notably said, a lot of the recessions are self-inflicted. And so is the reason why we're in uh, this situation with Pennsylvania. Uh, if you look at the state budget, uh, you know, we're negative balance, and yet the state budget this year was $2 billion more than the year before. So why not live within your means by saying, okay, if we don't have the money, let's not spend it, which then puts us in, in greater duress. And then they have to start looking at the budget. They had mentioned pensions, uh, the, the unaffordability with that. Uh, the other thing would be looking at, uh, you know, we're giving money to the University of Pennsylvania, and they got an endowment of $10.6 billion. So, you know, I would just look and say, it's self-inflicted for Pennsylvania, and we've got to do a better job with uh, our budget. All right, Mark, thank you very much for your call. But I will say right off the bat, I don't think that's accurate that uh, we are spending $2 billion more. Uh, in previous budgets, uh, the last few years, we have added, but this year, actually, we, we cut back. It was reduced. Yeah, the, the, the proposed spending, the appropriations for this fiscal year, the, the growth was uh, very uh, modest. Um, I think it was on the order of... Uh, 0.3% or 0.4%. Mm -hmm. But the point that he makes, I mean, this is something that legislators deal with all the time, uh, where to cut, uh, you know, where to raise taxes, how to raise revenue. I, everything, I think that uh, you had both Republicans and Democrats this time, Matt, who realized that, yes, there is a structural deficit, and it was something that would have to be dealt with long term, at least very on early on in the negotiations, mm -hmm. that seemed to be the realization. But what they came up with in um, relying on gambling revenue, expansion of gambling, and borrowing money, is that a long-term fix? So the revenue package that was passed, there were basically three components to it. And, and just bear in mind that what policymakers were facing we think is about a 2.2 to 2.3 billion dollar shortfall, and that's uh, the structural deficit, right? That is the well. That's a two-year deficit. Right. So there was a right. deficit of 1.5 billion for 1617, and then about eight, seven or eight hundred million for seven, uh, 1617. 
So to address those issues, uh, there was some borrowing. We think there's going to be uh, securitization of the tobacco fund monies of $1.5 billion to address the shortfall from 1516. And then for this year, excuse me, for last year, for 1617, the seven or eight hundred million dollar shortfall, and I would characterize that now as the the most recent estimate of the structural deficit. There is some transfers, uh, one-time transfers from special funds of about five hundred million dollars, and then there's the gaming expansion. That's about two hundred thirty million dollars um, to uh, to address the shortfall. Now, of those monies, the portion that's recurring. Some of the gaming monies will be recurring. Most of them are fees. There's also some changes to the sales and use tax, about 40 or $50 million. There's some changes to corporate net income, another 40 or 50. So most of the revenue package is, is non-recurring. And therefore, uh, if they're non-recurring, it does not address the underlying structural issues. So we could be in the same situation next year. It is possible. And I would note that there... It's just unusual, the situation, because, again, the economy is performing well, and it is not translating into revenue growth. So we have a forecast of the revenues. It's possible uh, we pick up a little money. Right now we're about spot on where the expectations are being met. Uh, It's possible we pick up a bit more, but we think um, if the revenues come in as expected and um, the economy doesn't pick up, then we could be in the same situation next year. So, Dan, what does it say to you as an analyst when a state is borrowing money to close a deficit? Well, it's not good. I mean, obviously, I, and I, I remind you again that I'm not with uh, the ratings agency. Right, but right. I, I think what the biggest thing that we're missing here is it's what's causing the structural deficit. I mean, this is not uh, – I think I, I feel a lot of sympathy for the, the policymakers in Harrisburg because this is not a, a – this is not a problem that was created last year by last year's legislature. This is something that's been going on for a very long time, and it's not necessarily the issue that there's not enough money coming in. I mean, as we talked about, the um, the economy is doing quite well. Revenues have not materially changed all that much in the last 10 to 15 years. What has changed is the the breakdown of what we're spending our money on. So we're spending more of our money on pensions and Medicaid than we ever have. Pennsylvania actually, as a state, pays uh, spends more money on Medicaid than any other state except for Ohio as a share of its budget. That has grown significantly over the last 15 years. And because we're a state and not a federal government, we can't borrow to pay for operations. It's a zero-sum game. So every time we see rev- uh, Medicaid spending increase by a certain amount over revenues, the, the gap in that structural gap has to be plugged from somewhere else in the budget. So we have to supplant money from higher education, from K-12 education, from police. So we're, we're, we're meeting this much larger and larger uh, mandatory spending requirement every year for pensions and Medicaid. And then we're trying to figure out how we can fund all of the, the other really important services like education um, that we have left over. Um, just based on that every year, and that share is going to get smaller and smaller. So like a, a really great um, example, the, one of the last um, reports that came out of the Obama administration in January 2017 was the actuarial report for Medicaid. So it forecast out how much Medicaid growth is going to be over the next 10 years or so. And it found that the, the state share, so just the state general fund share of Medicaid spending, is going to grow by about 6.5% every year for the next 10 years. Mm. Historically, tax revenues grow at about 5%. So every year you're going to have a 15 to 2% gap in between what's going out the door for Medicaid and what's coming in the door to pay for it. And every year that money has to be supplanted from somewhere else. So legislators are having to deal with a smaller and smaller share of overall money to be able to meet these you know, basic service needs. And that's something that's going to continue. And it's not something that's not necessarily – it's not something that's necessarily um, unique to Pennsylvania. It's just something – um, that is so much worse in Pennsylvania than everywhere else. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. 
We were talking about a report recently released by Moody's Analytics that indicates Pennsylvania is not financially prepared for another recession. Looking ahead to the state's economy and its finances with Dan White of Moody's Analytics and Matthew Niddle, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Independent Fiscal Office. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter. We are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a call from Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jim. Uh, I want to make a few points as quickly. I'll make them as quickly as I can. Um, the, 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 I don't mean to disrespect your guests, but, but the, the points they're making are points that anybody with half a brain should be able to figure out. We have a legislature that has been dysfunctional for years, at least since around 2000, and they simply will not make hard choices like either raising taxes or other revenues or cutting spending. They, they, they refuse to do that. And, uh, you know, you look at these budgets that um, where, where, where we uh, – where it's, it's the, the idea that they're balanced is a joke because we're borrowing from future revenues – to fund our, our current needs. Uh, the thing that surprises me, though, is that conservatives, people who really are conservatives, are not outraged by this. These, the Republican majorities, they call themselves uh, conservatives, but they're not, or at least they're not fiscal conservatives, because they're just doing crazy things. They're doing these crazy financing schemes to try to uh, balance the budget, and, and uh, you know they refuse to make hard choices. When, when I, I don't. I, I think that what is really the problem here is that the way we are electing our legislators is all screwed up. Because the way it works is we elect a bunch of left-wing uh, uh, folks on on one side and a bunch of right-wing folks on the other side. They never agree on anything. What we really need is redistricting reform. So thanks for listening to me. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, Dan, I'll I'll put this to you, and I won't ask you about uh, the size of your brain or anything. Uh, But when, you know, Jim is saying that... the won't legislators won't make the hard choices. Now, you just said a few minutes ago that you don't envy the choices that legislators have to make. But I think what he's talking about is making a choice to raise taxes if that and because that would be a hard choice. Mm-hmm. I, you know, bluntly, I'll, I'll ask the question bluntly. Is that what Pennsylvania needs? Well, it's not so much whether or not we raise taxes or not. It's what we do with the money after we raise it, right? So if we raise a severance tax or whatever, um, if we go and just create another program to spend that money on, then it makes no difference on the deficit. If we raise that money and we use it to give tax cuts by you know, replacing other forms of revenue like the property tax, that does us no good. Um, and again, if we do raise taxes, that's a very short-term fix. If we raise taxes, it helps us out for a couple of years. But again, the the rate of growth in tax revenue versus the rate of growth in things like Medicaid and pensions, there's a mismatch there. And until you get that mismatch figured out, we're going to end up right back where we started, only at a higher overall tax burden on the economy. So tax bur- a, a tax increase uh, might help for a couple of years, but it's not a long-term solution. Matt, does your office make any kind of recommendations as to how deficits should be closed, how to generate revenue? No, we we don't make recommendations um, regarding that or really any other uh, topic. Uh, we we attempt to avoid making those because it's a uh, it could delve into the political realm once one starts. And you're making independent, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, if I could, let me just uh, uh, note something that, that Dan just commented on. I would uh, note that. The tax system that we have now, like many states, was uh, designed many decades ago, and things have changed dramatically since then. And one of the reasons why we're seeing slower growth on the revenue side is we haven't made adjustments to the tax system um, as we're seeing in the economy. And to the extent that that's not addressed, it will cause continual issues going forward. Like in what way? I mean, point to something specific that uh, is antiquated, if that's uh, an accurate way to describe it. Well, it's very well known, and, and it's always a laggard that the sales tax growth rate does not keep up with the economy. So the sales taxes in any year might be growing by 2 or 2.5%. Two, two and a half percent. and um, 
what we're seeing is continual erosion of that tax base because over time, people spend more money on services, which are not taxed. They're spending more money on health care. Moreover, we have an aging demographic in the state, and as people get older, more of their income, their spending shifts to non-taxable items. So this is going on over time. That trend is going to continue, and as that continues, we're still going to get this slow growth in the sales tax, which supplies about one-third of our revenues. Let's take a phone call from Mitch in Chambersburg. Mitch, you're on the air. Thank you, Scott, and uh, thank you, your guests, for their time. I think what we're the the problem here is is we're trying to paint the leaves green, and we're not looking at the root of the problem. Um, Nick Hanauer, who I caught on on TED Talk a couple months ago, said it best. He 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 told he he came out by starting with saying. I have a message for my fellow plutocrats. The pitchforks are coming for you. What we have here is a situation that has existed since the 80s where they've tried to solve the trickle-down, and it does not work. Even Henry Ford knew that by paying his workers a good wage, and nobody ever changed manufacturing like Henry Ford did, that they could afford his product, too, Stimulus comes from the bottom up, and and the working force in this country has slipped so far that there's there's so little buying power, and then you combine that with the fact that the rich are not reinvesting in production; they're hoarding the money. Um, it's unarguable, and and if you look at the situation, uh, Mitch, we're losing you on the line. We don't have a good uh, a good. Uh... Uh, line there. But uh, Dan, what he's talking about, and this has been one of the things that has been unique to this recovery, uh, changing a little bit slowly in the last year or so, but wages have not increased. Mm -hmm. Even though there are a lot of jobs out there now, there are a lot of people looking to hire. In fact, there are many employers that can't fill their positions. But for the most part, wages have been slow to come back. And let's face it, one of uh, maybe the biggest issue in our economy is consumer spending. If uh, consumers don't have that money to spend, the economy doesn't isn't as healthy as what it should be. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's one of the other reasons we talked about, you know, reasons that the Great Recession was followed by the not so great recovery. Wage growth is a huge piece of that. And there are really two pieces. One is that, the, again, the jobs that we have regained since the recession are not the same jobs we lost during the recession. So mid-wage jobs were really hollowed out as a result of the Great Recession. States and local governments were a big part of that, but not all of that. So what you've got is you've got folks who um, maybe lost a mid-wage job in the early 2000s, and they replaced it with two low-wage jobs or one low-wage job. Um, and we have uh, – that's the first part. The second part is that there is a significant skills gap in the United States. So in the United States today, if you look at the job, it's called the JOLTS data, the Jobs Opening Layoff Turnover Ratio data. Um, there are more job openings in the United States than there have ever been. The problem is that we don't have the workers necessarily to fit those jobs, or we don't have the, the workers in the right places geographically to fit those jobs, and they can't move to where those jobs are. Um, that is probably the biggest thing holding back near-term wages, because if you look at um, the unemployment rate at 4.1%, any other time you'd see that uh, type of unemployment rate in the United States, you would expect to see wages just growing like gangbusters. Um, and they're not. And so there are some major mismatches in the labor market going on right now. Um, the other bigger picture issue with wage growth is that wage growth should more or less uh, mirror um, productivity. And productivity in the United States has dropped considerably, the growth rate in productivity. Um, it's, one of the re- it's one of the main reasons why we're not seeing, you know, 3 4% GDP growth. And we can change the tax code as much as we want over the near term. It's not going to increase productivity um, to the extent that we need to get that 3 or 4% growth. Over the longer run, um, the only way to get that productivity growth is through innovation and through investment in, in research and development. So while I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that, um, trickle-down economics is not um, uh, the catch-all to improve the, the U.S. economy. You do have to have some increases in investment and research in order to beget those um, those productivity gains over the longer run. Matt? Yeah, if I can speak about that uh, from the Pennsylvania perspective, uh, ordinarily in, a, in, in an ordinary non-recession year, Pennsylvania might produce about forty-five to 50,000 net new jobs. This year we're on pace to produce about 60,000, so it's a very solid number. 
But if you look at the underlying detail, uh, more than half of the new jobs that are created are in two sectors. They're in leisure hospitality and they're in health care. The leisure hospitality jobs are food service jobs. For the healthcare sector, more than half of them are related to care for the elderly or disabled. So these are senior daycares. They are uh, home health care. So these new jobs, these folks aren't getting paid a lot. These are relatively low-wage jobs. They're labor-intensive. And so to Dan's point, the composition of the jobs that are being created today, they are uh, disproportionately at the lower end of the wage spectrum. And we don't see that trend uh, stopping going forward because, again, we have an aging demographic in the state. Let's take a couple more calls. Nancy is in Lancaster. Nancy, you're on the air. Yes, hi. I wanted to mention about the uh, Medicare spending yes. for the elderly. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I have two jobs, and one of my jobs at night is taking care of older people. And um, in two instances, I had these ladies. One was like 90-something she had, like, hips replaced and one knee replaced, and she was going to go get the other knee replaced. And, and why? She's not going to contribute to society. She's just going to sit, watch TV all day long. We're spending all this money. The current ladies that I have now, she's got a CPAP, oxygen, boots, and it's all this equipment, all this money. I'm, like, shocked that, 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 that she's allowed to spend all this money to maintain her. But... But how how are you going to decide, uh, Nancy, on who gets care and who doesn't? I mean, that makes it. I mean, when they were debating Obamacare, there were people who say well, we were going to have death panels that would decide who lives, who dies. That sounds like what you're talking about. Well, me, I definitely I would love to be euthanized when I get to the point where I cannot contribute to society to take care of myself. And I mean, this is like it's like a black tunnel of money spending on this woman. And she's in a wheelchair, and she just she doesn't she doesn't do anything. Mm. Hey, thank you very much for your call. I mean, if you look at the overarching point of uh, what Nancy was saying, other than you know who decides how much money is spent on whom, and you know who's almost worthy of that, is that as both of you have said, Medicaid spending is just a huge part of this. How do you do anything about it, though? At, I mean, Matt, you said you said it. When we know it that Pennsylvania has one of the fastest growing older populations in the country. Yeah, well, Medicaid Medicaid is really the scariest part about all of this, and the reason is pensions. You know, we talked a lot about those, and they've been kind of beaten to death in the press. Pensions, thats a problem that we created and that we can solve in Pennsylvania. Medicaid, uh, the, you know, when we talk about it being mandatory, it's mandatory because we are required to, to spend money on it. And we're required by the federal government in order to get the matching to do that. There's not a lot of changes that we can do here in Pennsylvania to make that program a more sustainable program. We, we can and we probably should apply for waivers to make the program a little bit more amenable to how things work here in Pennsylvania. But in the grand scheme of things, this is something that has to be fixed in Washington. And, you know, say what you will about the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act is a lot of things to a lot of people. But one thing that it is not, and I don't think it ever claimed to be, was a long-term solution to Medicaid. And if anything, the, the ACA, by expanding the program, it, it doubled down on a program that was already unsustainable, which is why, uh, again, you know, regardless of how you feel about the ACA, we really need to have some kind of comprehensive um, health care fix done at the federal level sometime in the next three or four years. Now, what that looks like is obviously open for a lot of debate, but the fact that there has to be a fix is, is universal. Pat is in Waynesboro. Pat, you're on the air. Oh, wonderful discussion this morning. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, one comment before I go to the Medicaid uh, program. Um, wages have been stagnant, your guest said, but they certainly haven't been stagnant for our legislators. They've gotten a COLA that they've never had to vote on since 2005. But to Medicaid, um, we do allow um, people to impoverish themselves so that they can uh, put money into trusts and things like that, would preserve their wealth, and then they will be, uh, be able to go on to Medicaid um, for future health needs and medical needs. Could that be addressed, possibly? Thank you very much for your call. Matt, is that something that uh, you can address? Uh, no, I have to defer to Dan on that one. Yeah, Dan? <laughs> 
Well, I'm not quite sure I understand the point. So are you trying to say that the folks are intentionally making themselves more poor so that they qualify for Medicaid? I think that's a, that was a point, yeah. Um, I don't have data that, that suggests that that is a, a wide enough spread problem to really be causing Medicaid to grow so fast. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the problems with Medicaid in general are similar to the ones that Matt was talking about earlier. And they're, you know, again, amplified here in Pennsylvania, but nationally, um, we have some major demographic issues coming on in the country. We've got more people retired and fewer people paying in to, to cover those retirements, and um, that applies to Social Security and um, pensions, but it also applies to Medicaid and, and uh, Medicare. The, the bigger issue with Medicaid and Medicare, though, is that just overall health care costs, whether they're pri- paid for privately or paid for out of Medicaid or Medicare, are just growing much faster than the revenues that are coming in to support them. Dan White of Moody's Analytics and Matt Niddle of uh, Pennsylvania's Independent Fiscal Office, thank you very much for being with us today. Scott, Mike, thank you. Anytime, Scott. Thanks much. Obviously an issue that will have to be dealt with. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Edward Stanton served as Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War for much of the Civil War, revolutionizing the way soldiers were supplied and transported during wartime. Following Lincoln's assassination, Stanton led the search for John Wilkes Booth and the capture of his conspirators. Biographer Walter Starr chronicled Stanton's service during the Civil War in his book, Stanton, Legal's, uh, Lincoln's War Secretary. Walter Starr appears at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg this Saturday to discuss Stanton and sign copies of the book. Mr. Starr, thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome. Good to be here. Well, I, I just kind of touched on a couple highlights of uh, Stanton's career and life. And I have to say that uh, much of what I touched on there, uh, probably, I don't know, maybe down in the subheadings after after a while. But uh, let me uh, read something to you. New York diarist George Templeton Strong described Edwin Stanton as honest, patriotic, able, warm-hearted, unselfish, incorruptible, incorruptible, arbitrary, capricious, tyrannical, vindictive, hateful, and cruel. Now, many of those characteristics would not seem to go together. What kind of man was Stanton? Um, I think Strong had it about right, that he was all of those things and could be all of those things almost, you know, in the matter of a few minutes. He could be warm and generous with a, a widow who came with, you know, seeking help and then turn around and, and lash into an aide or be rude even to President Abraham Lincoln. Um, uh, he was a man with a temper. Stanton was from Ohio. He was a lawyer. He worked on a number of high-profile cases, but he became interested in politics. He was a Democrat, moved to Pittsburgh from Ohio, uh, and but eventually got involved with the federal government. He became attorney general under President James Buchanan. Now, this was a crucial time in the nation's history. Abraham Lincoln had just been elected, and southern states were threatened, threatening to secede. Talk about that time. Sure. Um, I mean, in the midst of secession winter, as everything else fell apart, Buchanan's cabinet started to fall apart, and, and Stanton was brought in to kind of fill a vacancy. Um, and right as he arrived, um, there, were, there were two sort of huge debates going on, um, uh, one relating to um, Fort Sumter, and another um, uh, relates to uh, Harrisburg itself. Um, there were some cannon there at the foundry, uh, the arsenal, that um, the Southern Secretary of War, um, Lincoln Secretary, sorry, Buchanan Secretary of War wanted to move south, and the residents rose up, um, and um, uh, Stanton was in communication with them. As Attorney General, and what eventually happened then with the the cannon coming from Harrisburg? They they stayed put. Hmm. Uh, One of the, the, I don't know, uh, themes throughout the Civil War is how everyone kind of was looking out for themselves, and uh, that that, uh, could be a case there. But Stanton was loyal to Buchanan, and as you write in the book, that even at the end of Buchanan's administration, that 
he was looked at as a failing president, as one of the worst presidents that the nation had ever had. But Stanton stayed loyal to Buchanan, even communicating with him when he left office and was living in Lancaster. And at the same time, uh, he wasn't very, uh, he, meaning uh, Stanton, wasn't very complimentary of the incoming president, Abraham Lincoln. No, those those letters from Stanton to Buchanan when they became public late in the 19th century, people's eyebrows sort of shot up because um, here was Stanton who had you know served through the war years Lincoln so closely, um, saying these incredibly negative things in the early months of the war um, about Lincoln, saying that you know he was an imbecile president and that. Uh, disgrace and disaster were all that one could expect from the Republicans running the government. And then a few months later, lo and behold, he becomes Lincoln's Secretary of War. And there's a Pennsylvania tie-in here, too. Pennsylvania Simon Cameron was Lincoln's first Secretary of War. He was a disaster. Why? Well, he had never, you know, sort of run anything as huge. I mean, in a sense, he had an almost impossible assignment, you know, taking a, a, a peacetime army of a few thousand men and turning it into a million-man army. Um, and he just wasn't up to managing that effort. And even if Cameron himself wasn't corrupt, um, he had an awful lot of friends around him in the War Department who were corrupt. Um, and so those Two things together meant that by the end of the first year of the war, Lincoln knew he needed a new secretary of war. And that new secretary of war became Edwin Stanton. Um, Even though he was a Democrat, uh, Republican Lincoln named him as uh, the secretary of war. He becomes a major figure right off the the bat, making some significant decisions. Uh, one right off the one of the the first things that happened uh, right off the top, uh, the war is in its early stages. General George McClellan was the commander of the Army of the Potomac. He was a friend of Stanton's, but not for long. McClellan was constantly asking for more troops, overestimating the strength of the rebel army, and he wouldn't move on Richmond. He sat and didn't do anything for the longest time, but yet. He constantly blamed Stanton for not coming through with these troops and uh, all the problems that he had, that, uh, that somehow Stanton was behind all this. Yes. Uh, is, you know, um, I mean, he, in McClellan's defense, he, he got close to Richmond. Yeah, he got he, close, yeah. He got close, you know, with the aid of, of Stanton and the War Department. It is the largest seaborne troop movement in American history occurs that spring uh, down to um you know, what we think of as Williamsburg, Yorktown area, and then marching up the peninsula. But uh, when push came to shove, um, was not um, willing to attack and indeed was attacked and then writes this amazing mess- midnight message to, to Stanton, blaming Stanton um, for the defeat. Um, uh, and, and by that time, Stanton is determined to get rid of this general. It takes it takes quite a while before before Lincoln finally uh, removes McClellan, um, but he does ultimately remove McClellan. You know something that that uh, I learned in your book and re- really had never heard before was that uh, toward the end of McClellan's reign, if you will, that there were a group of generals, his generals, loyal to McClellan who actually thought about, or maybe this is just a rumor, that uh, thought about a coup d'etat against uh, Washington and uh, Lincoln. Yeah, no, there were, um, uh, you know, reports coming back from the Army of the Potomac that senior officers, as they sat around after dinner with a drink, were saying, you know, we should just march this army on Washington. That would solve the problem. Um, And... uh, um, and, the, you know, the, the, we, we have this, you know, not just in one place. We have this in, from multiple sources. Um, uh, whether McClellan himself was ever sitting around, but, but you know, these are his senior officers. Mm. So let's talk about some of the – and throughout the war years, Stanton is involved in almost everything, and controversy seemed to follow everywhere that uh, with all the decisions that, that he made. Uh, 
one of the most controversial, and historians look at this very often, is that under Stanton's orders, those criticizing the government, including the media, were arrested, sometimes political foes. I mean, this is hard for us to imagine in the United States of America today, but there probably has never been. Well, there never was a time like the Civil War, but this was one of the most controversial things that Stanton and Lincoln ever did. Yes, and indeed, there's there's one example. I've forgotten this until I was preparing my remarks. Right there in Harrisburg, um, the editors of the Harrisburg Patriot put out a fake recruiting poster for a black regiment, and I think the purpose of the poster was to discourage whites from volunteering by suggesting that they were going to serve alongside blacks. What did Stanton do? He arrested the four editors um, and kept them in prison for a couple weeks, and um, uh, they were finally released by some of Stanton's lower-level aides, and they returned home to Harrisburg, where they're greeted by large crowds, and the newspaper says that, you know, this, this proves that the people of America are not going to sort of stand by while editors are arrested. But they were neither the first nor the last editors arrested by Lincoln and Stanton during the war years. And they also, the Lincoln administration suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Why was that significant? Well, usually, if you're arrested and there's no reason or justification for it, you can apply through your lawyer to a judge, and that's called the writ of habeas corpus. It's a process for reviewing whether you're legitimately arrested. Well, if the the writ is suspended, you can't do that. So in a sense, the suspension of the writ is, is viewed by lawyers as kind of the critical moment when one passes from normal civilian law to a kind of military law regime in which you don't have your usual rights. You mentioned uh, the the Patriot, and the Patriot wasn't the only one uh, doing this, uh, but putting that poster up that would uh, seem to indicate that uh, white troops would be serving alongside black troops. Uh, This was, again, one of the most controversial aspects of the war. But from the very beginning of the war, Stanton seemed to come down on the side of arming fugitive slaves or uh, or African-Americans here in Pennsylvania, which was a hugely controversial issue. It didn't happen until 1864. It, it it it's in large numbers doesn't happen till sixty four sixty five but in, in small numbers it begins to happen and you're right it's a it's a hugely controversial issue not just with Confederates but up in the north um, and by and large they are separate regiments the, the the recruiting posters suggesting that they were going to be you know sort of sharing tents and sharing messes uh, that that was not the way it was done but Stanton. He needed the men. Um, that was first and foremost. But he also had a vision, I think, of how serving in the army would change the lives of black Americans, make them Americans, really, not not mere slaves or former slaves. Um, and uh, it, he deserves some credit for that. Mm. Um. You know, I, I hate to skip years here, but that Lincoln uh, ran for re-election against McClellan in 1864. Stanton played a large role in that uh, re-election, didn't he? He did. He wasn't out giving speeches. Um, he, you know, he sort of left that to others. But he, um, sort of starting early in 64, kind of is focused on those elect- critical election days and focused on uh, some state laws allowed troops to vote in the field, um, and so in those cases, ensuring that the proper papers got to the army camps, but other states didn't allow that. Um, Delaware, for example, um, the troops had to get home, and so there's a whole set of messages you know, from Stanton to various army generals saying, okay, you're going to send this regiment home, you're going to send this regiment home um, to ensure that troops um, because he knew the troops um, were going to vote for Lincoln. And, it, and to some extent, he ensured that the troops voted for Lincoln by sending home a regiment whose colonel he knew was a loyal Lincoln man and leaving, leaving at home, or sorry, leaving on the front, um, 
uh, a regiment headed by a McClellan man. You know, I, I had that description of him uh, not being corrupt, but uh, there are a lot of instances in your book and in his life that people would consider today as corruption. Yeah, I mean, what we just talked about. Right. You know, that the, the use of the War Department for political purposes, um, giving, you know, furloughs to generals whom he knew were going to head home and give speeches in favor of Lincoln, giving furloughs to a particular regiment, and and punishing, in some cases, um, uh, army officers um, who were, in his view, too, too ardent in their advocacy of uh, McClellan for president of Democratic candidates. I know I'm skipping along here uh, in our last couple minutes, but uh, Lincoln was assassinated at Ford's Theater in Washington on April 14, 1865. In some ways, in many ways, Stanton just took over the government. He did. That night, he was really the acting president for you know that 24-hour period um, until Andrew Johnson becomes president. And even once Johnson becomes president, there are large areas that Stanton continues to run, the, the investigation of the assassination, the manhunt, the trial. All of that is really Stanton's work. The conspirators were... Uh, hanged when they were found guilty, which, you know, it's a lot different than today, after just uh, a few weeks, a few months. Mary Surratt owned the boarding house where they, the computer, conspirators met and was hanged. Uh, there were some who questioned her guilt, and even some speculation that Stanton committed suicide because of his guilt over Mary Surratt. Now, we only have about a minute left. What do you think of that? Um. It, it was controversial at the time, and there was a, a huge controversy as to whether Stanton kind of prevented President Johnson from seeing uh, papers um, urging clemency for Mary Surratt. But I don't think Stanton lost any sleep uh, over the execution of Mary Surratt. He was um, determined to see that those who had plotted um, the execution of sorry, the, the assassination of Lincoln, would be executed. And in his mind, Mary Surratt was one of those. Mm. Uh, we're out of time. I want to thank you, uh, Walter Starr, for being with us today. The, the book is Stanton, Lincoln's Worst Secretary. Walter Starr appears at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg this Saturday to discuss the book and sign copies of the book. There's a lot there. I mean, we didn't even talk about after the war with Andrew Johnson that almost led to his impeachment and uh, Stanton being a Supreme Court justice. Walter Starr, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Bye. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to talk about some of those job skills in the 21st century. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality.